I knew I was unhappy for a long time. I was doing things in parallel to sort of shift my time away from poker, but I wasn't able to actually walk away from it until the world gave me a huge shove. And then as soon as I did, I saw all this other stuff that I could pursue and ended up being much happier. And I think this is true with a lot of people who quit things. I wish I had quit earlier, which is not true of the academics. Like, I don't wish I had quit that earlier. I got a lot out of it. I actually wish maybe I had tried being a professor, but like, that's not the way it went. And I got a lot of stuff out of poker and that was fine. But in this case, I really do wish I had quit earlier. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to the episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Annie Duke. Annie is an author, she's a corporate speaker, and a consultant in the decision-making space. The occasion for today's chat is Annie's latest book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, which was released last week. As a former professional poker player, Annie has won more than $4 million in tournament poker. During her career, Annie won a World Series of Poker bracelet and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship. She retired from the game in 2012, Prior to becoming a professional poker player, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Annie Duke to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Annie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm pumped to chat with you about a subject that so many people struggle with. It's quitting. It's We contemplate when to quit. We contemplate when not to quit. We sometimes quit too early. We sometimes quit too late. And you wrote an entire book on all of this. And before we get into that, I want to start with like a personal question for you, because we all struggle with this. Times where we feel that we should quit something or we shouldn't quit something, and we're in this battle almost in our minds of what to do. Like, What's been one situation that you'd be willing to share and talk about where you were contemplating quitting something and you actually made that decision to quit and then your life became better as a result of it in some way. So actually, so I want to talk about a time that I was like, I was kind of forced to quit and then made a decision to quit, but the struggles that I had with it. So my life became better in a lot of ways, but then I also carried a lot of shame about quitting along with it. Because I think in part this, like, it's possible that this is part of the reason why I wrote the book. So When I was in graduate school, so I started off my adult life at UPenn studying cognitive science. So I was a graduate student. My advisor was someone named Lila Gleitman, who's amazing. Like just passed last year at 91, just intellectual powerhouse, kind, funny, amazing human. So I was there for five years. And just to give you a sense of five years, it means like you're kind of done at that point. So I'd already done what's called my qualifying exams, which are a big deal. I'd already done the work for my dissertation, and I had job interviews lined up. So I was going to go get a tenure-track position. And during my last year, during that fifth year, I was struggling with a stomach illness that was somewhat chronic and became very acute, and I ended up in the hospital for two weeks. So it became clear, like, I couldn't 
I needed to postpone my job talks and I needed to take some time off. So I took time off to try to recuperate. And it was during that time that I actually started playing poker out of need because I needed money. So I like, and I had like really particular things. Like I couldn't start a new career because I was still planning to go be an academic and stick to that. I needed really flexible hours because I didn't exactly know how I was going to feel from day to day because I wasn't well. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't like, I knew that whatever I did, I would quit pretty quickly. So I didn't want to like also let anybody down. So poker actually was kind of ideal, like sort of make your own hours. You can make some money. This was in the 90s. My brother sort of got me into it. It was before it was on television and whatnot. So it was also quite anonymous, which I liked. And it just turned out like I really loved the game. And also I think partly because I didn't feel well, the thought of like going back and finishing my dissertation also I think was a little bit overwhelming for me at the time. So I just kind of kept playing poker. And it was sort of one of those things where like I was good at it. It kind of fit what my mind liked. And I left academics and I I went and played poker. And I would never have done that if I hadn't gotten sick. Like if the world hadn't made me do that, I wouldn't have discovered poker. But here's the thing that came along with it was this horrible shame at quitting. And I think, first of all, I, I felt like I was letting my advisors down, right? Like Lila and her husband, Henry. I felt like I let the program down. I felt like I let my parents down. In a lot of ways, I kind of felt like I let myself down. And I was embarrassed that I had quit, you know, and I think that this is part of the problem, right? Is that we have these negative connotations with quitting. It just feels like such a character flaw, you know, and this idea of like letting people down and feeling like I'd wasted everybody's time and my own time. And I I just felt super deep shame about it to the point where I actually lost touch with Lila because I was just so, I was so deeply embarrassed by having done this. And then One day in 2012, I was at an orthopedic office. I had problems with my shoulders, my one shoulder rather. And I looked over in the waiting room and Lila was sitting there. So just to give context, this is now like 20 years after I left, quite a long time after I lost touch with her and Lila's sitting there. And I went over and sat down next to her and just said, hi. She was like, oh my God, Annie. And we were fast friends ever since. And it was really quite amazing. She wasn't angry at me. The only thing she was sad about was that we had lost touch. She wasn't mad at me for quitting. So all of the shame that I had carried around with me, once I saw her again, she just welcomed me back into her life, like just happy to see me. We spent the last decade seeing each other at least once a week, except for during the pandemic when we talked on the phone a lot. I talked explicitly to her about feeling ashamed for quitting. She was like, what are you talking about? Like, as a mentor, we just want our students to go do something that brings them joy. And if that's what, that's the way that you were going to live your life, I was happy for you. And so I would say that like one of the sad things in my life is that I lost 20 years with this person who was one of the most important people in my life, who I cared about like a mother because of my shame about having quit the program. And I'm very grateful for getting the last 10 years with her, but I'm so sad about the time in between, which was my fault. It was, if I talked to her about it, I would have found out that she was happy for me. Thanks for sharing that. And I got to imagine that had to have been pretty hard when you lose that much time 
with somebody that you care about deeply. I guess to put a bow on that, like I know a big part of your book is is really learning how to have a better relationship with failure and quitting and that sort of thing. How has that experience and you experiencing all that shame and like guilt for missing out on that time, how has that impacted your like current relationships and how you handle spending time with people you care about deeply now? Well, so it's interesting because I think that I'd already made that, started to make that change before I reconnected with Lila. I think that I'm very open with just saying directly like how I feel to people, which I think is something that was a mistake that I made. Because again, if I had just talked to Lila, I wouldn't have lost the time with her, right? Like, I think that I'm much more, I sort of realize a lot more from that, the stories that we tell in our own heads. And the thing about the stories that we tell in our heads is that they're not necessarily what other people are actually thinking about us. And I think that, you know, like as an example, like when you're thinking about quitting something, you're like, oh, people are going to think less of me. You know, they're going to think that I wimped out or that I'm weak-willed or you know, capricious or it's a character flaw or whatever. And when you actually talk to people, when you're pretty direct and you say, so like, I'm thinking about this, what do you think? It often turns out that the, what you think they, they're looking at you and saying is actually not the story that they're telling at all. And so I think I'm just much more likely now to say the things that I'm thinking out loud, right? Like this is, I'm worried that you're going to think this, or this is how I'm thinking people are going to perceive me or whatever. And I, I think that I'm just much more direct in saying those things out loud to try to check what's in my head against what the reality of the situation is. And the other thing is that I'm just, I tell people all the time that I love them because I just feel so deeply having missed those 20 years with someone who I loved very deeply. And gosh, I wish I could get those back, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's good to hear that you have this level of self-awareness now to know that like relationships and telling people you love and care about them is uber important to you. And also that you're able to be at this place where you can just tell people how you really feel and be direct without like as much shame attached to it as before. I guess to build off of that, I can imagine that quitting a game like poker where you had so much success in so many different areas of your life in that and like the sport of poker often goes hand in hand with addiction. People have addiction to drugs, gambling, money, fame, like everything. Like what was the process like of you walking away from that? Like what inspired you to walk away? And then what was your relationship with quitting like that? And let me say, but like many things, I feel like I quit too late. <laughs> so this is kind of one of the points is that we tend to get to these things too late. We need more certainty around them. And often we have to have the world kind of shove us into it. So when I was playing poker in the 90s, it was awesome. I was sort of knee deep in the game, in the problem that I was trying to solve, which is really hard. Decision making under that kind of uncertainty for such high stakes is just a really, really interesting problem to think about and try to figure out like in real time. And I loved it. But there was some point at which... I mean, first of all, when poker was on TV, there were a lot of really great things that came from it. So this happened now in like 2002, 2003, it's on television. So this is long after I had already started playing. It was like eight years in. And I think that I mentioned like one of the reasons why I liked it when I first started it was that it was very anonymous. 
And this was obviously no longer anonymous. And there were great things that came with that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like, oh, it's so horrible to have people know you. I mean, it's obviously there were wonderful things that come with the platform. I couldn't be writing the books that I am right now without having built that platform. So, I, you know, I'm, there's lots of gratitude for the luck of it becoming a thing on television. But at the same time, there are a lot of things that made it really hard. And I think that it was right around then, or at least around 2005, that I, I sort of felt like I was already starting to get unhappy in the game. And part of it was sort of what, what you mentioned was when I was so deep in the problem that I was trying to solve, I just wanted to figure out how to play really well, right? Like it was everything. It was like solving this problem that was really cool. And then at some point, I kind of you know, you sort of look up from the table when you've been in it for a while and you kind of realize that like everyone at the table is super miserable. I mean, in general. So there's lots of people who like, and let me be clear about this. There's tons of poker players who are amazing, who are people of absolutely the highest integrity, who are super cool and super interesting. But that is not everybody in the game. And as you said, there's a lot of people who have like gambling problems. I saw lots and lots of people that I knew and cared about descend into really bad drug issues. And that's hard. And, you know, not only that, but poker is a very weird game where if you're doing well at it, you're making the people around you sad by definition, because I'm taking your money, right? And particularly as a woman in, in the game, that was particularly difficult because there's a certain level of, you know, sexism that occurs. I mean, there's, you know, at the professional levels, it's like three or 5% of the people playing poker are women and there's no HR department. And if someone's having their money taken from them, think about how they feel when it's a woman doing that, right? Like, which is also hard on its own. So in 2002, actually, once poker got popular, people sort of knew who I was. I started getting asked actually by particularly people in finance to come and talk about how poker might relate to the way that they were thinking about risk. And of course, I had a background in cognitive science. So I was relating that to, you know, cognitive bias and how you think about these real-time problems of debiasing and improving your decision quality under these circumstances where you have so little information and there's a lot of luck involved. And what I kind of discovered through that process in parallel to what was becoming a deeper unhappiness in poker was that it was the same problems that I was thinking about, but in a win-win situation where I was gaining enjoyment and getting paid to think about these problems and they were getting something out of it. So I wasn't, it wasn't just like, if I'm good at this, I'm just going to take your money. It's I'm going to leave behind something that's really good for you. And, you know, what I kind of realized was that in poker, you're very often kind of interacting with the D, ver like the sort of D plus or D minus version of people, because if they're losing, they're not going to be their best selves. And then, and you know, and I just sort of thought, oh, there was a period where I thought, well, people are just kind of miserable. But then when I started doing this other stuff, what I realized was, no, like everybody has like an A plus version of themselves in a D minus version of themselves and everything in between. And it just depends on like a lot of it is the context of how are you interacting with them? What's the environment that they're in? And I imagined that a lot of the people that I was having these very good interactions with 
in the more sort of consulting, speaking, sort of business, cognitive science life, that if I had interacted with them at the poker table, maybe they would be miserable too. So that was like a really big revelation for me. And what I found was that I started to get much more attracted to that side of the world and less attracted to playing a lot of poker. So by the time that I would say that by the time that about 2005 rolled around, I was only spending about 20 or 25% of my time playing poker, but I was still doing it. I still like, it was so part of my identity that I couldn't quite get to sort of the quitting decision, which, you know, I talk about a lot in the book because what, you know, when you've got a lot of time and effort, but particularly like a lot of your identity wrapped up, like people knew me as Annie Duke, the poker player, right? It becomes very hard to walk away from things. And oftentimes the world has to give you a shove. So in my case, the world gave me a shove. A company that I was working on called Epic Poker, we were, we were putting on poker tournaments for professionals, ended up declaring bankruptcy. It was right around the time that like the DOJ shut online poker down. So it just wasn't a good environment for a startup. And then my brother got embroiled in, he was embroiled in some of this stuff that happened with this company called Full Tilt, which was caught up in the DOJ stuff. So he was having a miserable time and really experiencing a lot of like attacks because people were very upset that the online poker world had cratered. This company that I had been involved with and bid one of the founders with went bankrupt. And obviously I could have stayed, but that that was enough of the world shoving me away to say, I'm not spending that much time on this anyway, and I think it's time for me just to leave. And the thing is that when I left, it ended up allowing me more time to focus on my consulting, more time to focus on my speaking. I had been thinking about writing this book, Thinking in Bets, for a couple of years, and I just hadn't been able to find the time to do it. It freed up the time for me to be able to do that, and I released that in 2018. And then I ended up back at Penn, doing research now with Phil Tetlock, who wrote Super Forecasting, and, and his wife and collaborator, Barb Mellers, also with Marie Schweitzer over at Wharton. And now, like, I'm teaching at Wharton. And so I think that it's such a lesson, right? Like, I knew I was unhappy for a long time. I was doing things in parallel to sort of shift my time away from poker, but I wasn't able to actually walk away from it until the world gave me a huge shove. And then as soon as I did, I saw all this other stuff that I could pursue, and ended up being much happier. And I think this is true with a lot of people who quit things. I wish I had quit earlier, which is not true of the academics. Like, I don't wish I had quit that earlier. I got a lot out of it. I actually wish maybe I had tried being a professor. But, like, that's not the way it went. And I got a lot of stuff out of poker, and that was fine. But in this case, I really do wish I had quit earlier. Yeah. And, and in life, we live with so much regret. I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Pink, are you? Yeah, yeah. I just had him on the podcast and yeah, he's awesome. And we talked a lot about like re regret and how to deal with like exactly like what you're talking about. And I want to dive into kind of something you touched on, which I know you talk about in the book and a lot of people struggle with this when they're quitting something, they're leaving something that's no longer serving them, or they're, they're not leaving it because of this reason. And that reason is their identity is so wrapped up in it. It's everything. And you talked about how your identity was was wrapped up in you as a poker player. People knew you as Annie Duke, the poker player. What were some of the the steps that you took, or how did you transition from like re-identifying yourself and, and really becoming a new version of of who you were? When it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach further, and go the extra mile. The relentless drive runs in your blood. 
That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed up recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Doug. Again, that's insidetracker.com forward slash Doug. Take advantage of this great deal. Now back to the show. Well, I mean, first of all, I think in my case, remember I was, I was doing it in parallel. So I was already speaking and consulting. So that makes it a lot easier to walk away from things because you're walking to something else. But the thing that I think that people need to realize is that in my case, I kind of knew what I was walking toward. But no matter when you quit, you're walking toward something else. You may not know what it is, right? But you're walking toward it. And I think that part of the problem is that we have this thing called the ambiguity aversion. We're just averse to sort of the not knowing. And what's interesting, and I don't know if Dan Pink talked to you about this, is that we feel less regret from getting bad results out of sticking with the status quo than we feel out of having bad things happen from switching. I mean, I can give you an example from someone who I talk about in my book, who I talked to for my book, actually, a woman named Sarah Olston Martinez. She's a doctor. She was an ER doctor. And people write into me and I, you know, I try to respond to the things that people write into me. And she happened to write into me when I was first starting working on this book. And she just said like, oh, she had heard me on something where I talked about quitting a little bit. And she said, I'm thinking about quitting my job. I kind of need help with the decision. I know it's probably a long shot that you talk to me, but maybe you will. And little did she know I was involved in writing this book about this topic. So, you know, I got in touch with her and we talked and, you know, it was kind of the same thing. You can tell the story over and over again, because it sounds very similar to what I was doing in poker. She had been in the ER doc. She loved it. Then things about her job had changed. You remember that was true for me too, right? So poker's all of a sudden on television. Then this thing happens with online poker and there's a lot more people in it. And The world was very different than when I started. And also sometimes, by the way, nothing changes. Your preferences just change, which I think also happened with me also, right? Like I was so embroiled in the problem of the game that I didn't notice the misery around me in the same way until a few years into it when I was like, oh my gosh, wait, the people around me are very sad. So she was kind of in that situation also. She loved loved being an ER doc, but then she was promoted to being an administrator also. So the number of shifts that she was spending actually in the ER were reduced. Her time as an administrator was much greater. And one of the things that she loved about being an ER doctor is that separate and apart from loving the work, she liked that she didn't bring the work home. In some sense, it's really just shift work. Whereas when she was administrator, she was bringing the work home and that was starting to negatively impact her life after she had children because she felt she couldn't really focus on her children. The other thing about her situation was that she couldn't really just go back to being an ER doc because there were a lot of stuff that had changed from the time she first started that had to do with just just things like reimbursement and obviously the pandemic and things like that that really had made what that job looked like very different than the job she had initially fallen in love with. So she described all of this to me, and it seemed to me that it sounded like she was very unhappy. And she had another opportunity that she could take, but she didn't know whether she should actually take this opportunity. 
So as a lot of people, when they're listening to these things from the outside, they're like, well, what is going on? Like, it's clear she's unhappy. But she said all the things like, like, what am I going to be if I'm not an ER doctor? That's who I am, right? Which you heard in my story as well. Also, you know, she was like, her supervisors were going to be disappointed in her. Her fellow ER doctors were going to think she wimped out. Like, it's all the stuff that makes this very hard for us. So I just said to her, well, let me ask you something. Like, imagine it's a year from now and you decide to stay in your current situation. What's the probability that you're going to be unhappy? And she said it was 100%, which isn't surprising because she was already unhappy. She had been unhappy for a few years. So then I said, well, let's say you take the new job what's the probability you're going to be unhappy? And she said, I don't know, but I'm really worried if I take it, I will be. So, you know, this is this worry about what if it doesn't work out and I'm going to regret it. And I said, okay, I know you don't know. And I know you're really worried that you're, you're going to be sad and regret it if you're unhappy, but are the chances that you're unhappy a hundred percent? And she said, well, of course not. And I said, well, so just take a stab. Like, what do you think the chances are you're unhappy? And she said, you know, I don't know, maybe 50-50. And I said, well, is a 50% chance at happiness better than a 100% chance at unhappiness? And she said, yes. I mean, of course she said yes to that. And once I sort of explained it to her that way, she did actually quit. But notice this is that regret problem, right? Is that what she's expressing to me is that she's sort of living in that, what if I switch and I'm unhappy problem? Because then I'm going to regret it. And that's despite the fact that staying in her current position has a 100% chance of unhappiness. And I think that that's one of the things that really stops us from switching a lot. You know, I had something, again, I had something that I was walking toward, but it was something that I knew I was walking toward. I think that people need to realize that when you're unhappy in your current position, even though you're walking to, into the unknown, it's more likely you'll be happy there. And that when you quit, you're always walking towards something and a chance to explore new opportunities, a chance to find something else that makes you happy. And I think that's just really important for people to start to understand is that you don't really know what you're missing out on a lot of times until you walk away from the thing that you're doing. That's great advice. And it's so like tactical and easy for people to kind of implement when they're at a crossroads on not just like whether they should quit or not, but they know they should quit. And they're like having trouble making that first step when they know in their gut they should. You mentioned like almost like having this self-dialogue for somebody to have a self-dialogue because obviously they're not going to have somebody like you. They're asking these questions where you they, they ask themselves like, what are the odds they're going to be unhappy at their current profession or in this, in this current relationship like in the next six months? And the answer might be 100%. And then the they get into a new relationship, new job, the answer might be 50-50. Is there any other questions or any other tools that you found to be useful when people are experiencing the same problem when they they know in their gut they should quit but they're trying to rationalize and talk themselves out of it yeah so i mean first of all let me just say everybody can use a good quitting coach so i just happen to be that for for sarah but i'm sure you've had people in your life they're talking to you about their miserable job and you're just like trying to coach them to quit right Now, the thing about a quitting coach is that you have to really give that person permission to tell you the truth, because what happens is that we tend to want to spare people's feelings, right? So we don't really want to tell them the hard truth. Like, Like, it's really hard when you see someone in a miserable relationship to be like, buddy, this isn't working out. You should really leave, right? Like, that's dangerous territory to tread in. So you really need to have, like, permission giving on both sides. And, and, 
obviously Sarah gave me that permission. She was reaching out to me to specifically have a conversation about quitting. So I had permission to tell her what I saw. But here's, here's the fact of the matter is that quitting is really hard and we have the intuition. I think we all share this intuition that when the world is telling us that we should quit, that we're going to pay attention and we're going to do it. But the fact is that we're really good at rationalizing away the signals that tell us we ought to quit. There's all sorts of different ways that we do that. And this is like in advance, you know, I'll give you an example. Like there are a gazillion stories of people breaking different parts of their body very early in marathons and continuing to run and finish. In the 2019 London Marathon, there was a woman named Siobhan O'Keefe who broke her femur. It snapped on mile eight and she finished the race. Now, I assume, Doug, that you have the intuition that if you were running a race and you broke your leg on mile eight, you would not finish. I'm just guessing. I think we all do. But people do this all the time. In that same race, I think there was a guy named Stephen Quayle who broke his ankle right around the same point in the race, and he also finished. And they do this accumulating damage, right? Like risking not being able to run for a really long time because they're making the problem a lot worse in order to just sort of barrel toward the finish line, right? And, you know, we've seen people who are like a very famous example in the 1950s of these people who are in a cult. It was called the Seekers. These aliens from the planet Clarion were going to come and destroy the earth by flooding the whole earth. But the true believers on December 20th were going to get picked up in the spaceship by the aliens and saved. Okay, so now you would assume that if you're looking at that from the outside looking in, that if the aliens don't come, you would quit the cult. Like the whole cult is based on the aliens coming at midnight on December 20th. So the aliens come, and this was a very famous case that was studied by Leon Festinger. The aliens don't come, obviously, on the 20th. The earth is not flooded. And what happened is the majority of the people in the cult actually doubled down. They escalated their commitment to the cult. And because it's really easy for us to rationalize it away, like we were so devout that that's why they didn't come. So now they're delaying the arrival, right? Like things like that. Like we just find ways to stick to it. You know, I mean, I I talk about like even, you know, politicians will do things where I think in advance of supporting the politician, if they did those things, you'd say, well, I wouldn't support them afterwards. Right. Like, obviously, I wouldn't support a politician who did that thing. And then the politician gets embroiled in some sort of scandal. And, you know, you say, oh, it's not so bad because their policies really align with me or actually it's a plot by the establishment or what. Like you come up with a billion different reasons why it's just not true. Or, you know, I mean, we, we saw this happen, for example, with the QAnon thing. Right. Which was, I guess, March 4th. Trump was going to supposed to become president in 2021, and he didn't. Did they abandon their beliefs? Of course not, right? Because you can just sort of rationalize that away. Now, the thing is that we're doing that for things that don't have to do with anything as extreme as being in a cult. It can just be like you're in a relationship and it's going really badly, but you don't want to abandon it because all of the time and effort that you've put into it and you're part of this couple and you owe it to your partner and you know you can turn it around. And if you just try this thing or if you just wait it out and the same thing with a job with a toxic boss, like I need to, I can't abandon course now or a project that you won't let go. So we have this problem just like left and right. So here's the situation that I think that people really need to understand is that when you're in it, when you're facing down the decision 
is when it's going to be really hard for you to actually quit. In the same way that like you can decide that you want to eat healthier, but when the cupcake is sitting right in front of you, that's when you're going to be at your worst. It's just going to be really hard to resist it. So what you have to do is do a whole bunch of advanced planning, lots and lots of pre-commitments, right? So how do we do that when it comes to quitting? Well, um, you know, because you're in recovery, what's one of the things that they really recommend to you? Like, don't go hang out at the same places. Don't hang out with the same people. That's a pre-commitment. It's just not putting you in it anymore, right? It's you saying that's bad for me. It's really likely that I'm going to relapse if I put myself in that situation. So therefore I won't. So that's a good example of a pre-commitment. So how do we then apply that to quitting? Well, if we know in the moment we're going to say all these things about how I can turn it around and I can make it, you know, or I'm going to rationalize away the information or I'm going to try to protect the way that my identity is tied to the thing that I'm doing or whatever it might be, then what I have to do is say, okay, I may think right now that I can turn this around and I may think that I may be able to make the situation better, but what does that actually look like in the future? And I'm talking the near future, right? So as an example, let's say you're in a relationship that's going really poorly and you really don't want to walk away and you think that you can turn it around and be happy or you think you can bear the unhappiness that you're feeling in the moment being in that relationship. I'm assuming no kids because that obviously complicates things. It's going to be really hard for you to do it right then. But what you can do is say, what do I need to be feeling in the next month? Or what do I need to be feeling in the next three months in order for me to feel like this is still worth my time? If you're in a job that you're really unhappy in and you think that you can turn it around and make it work, define what that looks like. Actually write that down and say, this is what it's going to look like. This is how I'm going to feel when I go to work in the morning. This is what I'm going to accomplish. This is what my relationships at work are going to look like. And write it down and then make a pre-commitment that if that's not the way that the world looks like at that moment, then you will quit. And that process of getting yourself out of the moment, thinking more into the future and what will this look like in the future actually makes it much more likely that you'll walk away. Right. Gosh, that was freaking gold. I think so many people are going to love hearing that because they struggle with that very thing. Like I've invested so much time in this relationship. He or she cares about me so much, or I've been at this job for X amount of years and they've been loyal to me. I've been loyal to them. Like I've got too much invested. Like why should I walk away? And just being able to go back to these pre-commitments and just learning not to make decisions like in the moment, like impulsive decisions and really taking some time to like kind of practice the pause and going back to the pre-commitments and then looking into the future. I want to like look at the flip side of what you're talking about for a minute, because I think this is something, I think this is one of the reasons why quitting is so stigmatized that it often goes hand in hand with like lack of discipline and not seeing things through. And, and, I, and for instance, like for me, if I wasn't happy at a job when I was a kid, I would just quit. And I had, and that became a pattern. I had no self-discipline. I didn't understand the importance of doing things even when I didn't feel like doing it, even though it would be good for me. And one of the things I see in my profession as a personal trainer is that when somebody is starting to make a change and on this journey that is good for them, 
when they get like some bad news or maybe the, the scale doesn't move in the way they thought it would or it becomes harder or maybe they get more hours at, at work and, and things become more difficult and go on and on with examples of what happens. I know you call it like bad news, like how to deal with the bad news. Like how does somebody not quit in that moment and not quit so soon and see things through when adversity starts to come at them when they're trying to achieve a goal? So here's the thing. I'm a big fan of grit. I think everybody should read the book. <laughs> Angela Duckworth is super smart. And I think she has a lot of great things to say. And I think that people misinterpret her work. And the way that people misinterpret it, I think, fits with what our bias is, which is just quitting is bad. Because I think that what the way that people interpret her work is just grit is good. It's a virtue and quitting is bad. And that you should just stick things out because that's how you build character. But she actually wouldn't agree to that. The thing is that what you want to do is always be trying to figure out how do I stick to the things that are worthwhile and not to stick to the things that aren't worthwhile. And this is independent of whether it's hard, right? So that's what you're talking about. Like what happens when you butt up against those obstacles? So you have to be able to work through the hard stuff if it's worthwhile, if it's worth doing. So, you know, the, the issue that I have with grit is that the reason why you shouldn't think about it just as a virtue is because grit does get you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile, which is what you're talking about, right? It gets you to stick out like when the scale's not moving or you're really sore or the first time that your life gets really busy and you're having trouble carving out time to go to the gym or you don't see immediate results or whatever, right? But grit also gets you to stick to hard things that are not worthwhile. Like when you're at the top of Everest and there's a snowstorm or you've broken your leg on mile eight of a marathon where you should actually just walk away. Okay, so what we want to do is figure out how do we figure out what to stick to and what not to independent of whether it's hard. Because I'm not telling people that they should quit things because they're hard. There's lots of things that you should stick to that are totally hard because they're completely worthwhile. And the way that you figure that out is to realize that grit and quit are the exact same decision, right? They're not opposing forces. It's not like one's a virtue and one's a vice. It's if I choose to stick to something, I'm by definition choosing not to quit. And if I choose to quit something, I'm by definition choosing not to stick it out. So once we understand that, it's about how do we make good decisions about what to stick to and what not to stick to. And in your case, like when you're talking about like someone coming in in a personal training situation, it's identifying what the goals are. And again, in advance, what should you expect to see? What is reasonable to expect to see? And then also to plan out in advance, what are you going to do when you plateau? What are you going to be feeling? And what do you think a reasonable reaction to that would be? So we can think about it like, for example, like let's say that somebody plateaus, right? And they're saying, I want to quit in this particular case, right? They're not wanting to stick to something. They're wanting to quit. So you can use the exact same thing. Let's keep going. Let's change a few things and let's see what we should expect to see in a month, right? And let's write down what's reasonable given what you're doing. So maybe we'll tweak with a few things. And then maybe also if you see that to say, we may need to go get more information. So like, have you gone to the doctor and made sure that your thyroid is good? Like as an example, right? That you don't have some sort of process going on that actually needs to be treated outside of this. But it's actually the exact same strategy, which is to say, if you're going to say, I know I can turn this around, what you have to do is commit to what does that look like? What does turning it around look like in the future? And also at the beginning of the process to say, 
I can tell you what some of the obstacles that you're going to experience are along the way. Let's identify them in advance so you're not surprised by them. Let's write down what your reaction to those things is going to be. And then when you actually butt up against them, you already have a plan and a pre-commitment for how you're going to deal with it. And this is true of all decision-making, whether it's about should I stick to it or should I not, is you have to be thinking about these things in advance. Because when we're in the moment, we're going to tend to make pretty bad choices. But when we're thinking more long-term, that's when we start to make really good choices. And it doesn't matter which side of the coin you're thinking about, that would strategically be the exact same thing. I love that. I love having these like pre-commitments and a plan for like when the tough parts come, right? Because the tough parts will come when trying to achieve any goal or go on any journey that is going to transform your life or that's going to create big changes in your life. It's going to be hard. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be circumstances you don't like. There's going to be a lot of discomfort, but it's learning how to not only get through that discomfort and just keep going. It's about understanding, like, is this discomfort and getting through it going to make a positive change in my life? Kind of like what you said a few minutes ago. And I think the thing is that for people to remember is that sticking to something because it's hard is not good. Sticking to something that's worthwhile is what's good, regardless of whether it's hard, right? Quitting something because it's hard, that's not the way that you should be living your life. But quitting something that's not worthwhile, regardless, again, of whether it's hard, that's really what you want to be doing. And that goes back to sort of that conversation that I had with Dr. Olsen Martinez, which is what's the probability you're going to be happy in your current situation versus the probability you're going to be happy doing something else that's also going to move you toward your goals, right? So that that's the thing that we have to remember is that it's not about hard or not hard because you know, climbing Everest is hard, like running a marathon is hard, like doing hard things are often really worthwhile. It's when does it shift from being worthwhile to not worthwhile? Like, and so we know, like there's, there's clear things, like when you break your leg at mile eight, it's no longer worthwhile. So don't continue. But someone who's willing to run a marathon, who has that kind of grit is likely then to err on the side of sticking to it. Right. And vice versa. So that's the thing that we really want to be able to distinguish. And that has to do with really laying out, like, what are my goals? If I stay on this path, is it is it helping me gain ground toward those goals? Or is it actually slowing me down by sticking to it? Because either, you know, the thing that I'm doing is failing or there's other things I could be doing that would be more worthwhile. And that, you know, and that would be like very much the Osta Martinez case. Like if your goal is, is to be happy in your work and to have a healthy family life, clearly staying in the position was causing her to lose ground switching and quitting actually was going to allow her to speed up toward achieving that goal. And I think that that's a misconception that we have about quitting is that quitting slows you down or it stops your progress. And that's not true. When you quit at the right time, when it's warranted, it actually speeds you up. Because by definition, what that means is that the thing you're doing is not causing you to gain enough ground towards your goals or maybe causing you to lose ground. And if you switch to some other opportunity, you can actually get to where you want to go faster. And I think that's just like super hard for us to realize because we don't really think about what the opportunity cost is. Like what are the other things that we might be doing, able to do with our time? And instead we use this, these sort of very simple heuristics, right? Which is, well, sticking to things is good. Sticking to hard things is good. Sticking in situations where most people would walk away is good. That will build my character. That's virtuous, right? And the problem is that you just need more context than that. And what we need to add is 
true, but only if it's still worthwhile. And that's why I think that every single goal that we ever set for ourselves ought to have some unlesses attached to it. Like, this is what I want to pursue unless, you know, in the simplest sense, unless I break my leg during this, this marathon, then I'm, then I'm going to quit. But I just think that you need to have some unlesses. And I think that that's a lot about looking ahead and saying, if I'm looking into the future, what does success look like? And if I'm not hitting that, then, then I need to think about walking away. And those would be the unlesses. I personally call them kill criteria. You know, and I've used this like as an example, like we know in business that people tend to hang on to employees too long. They're not fast enough to let people go. Sometimes I think because they say, well, I owe it to the employee. But the, the thing that you need to realize is that you're not allowing that employee to go, first of all, get the feedback and second of all, get into a position where they're happier. Like you mentioned in the relationship where someone says, well, I can't leave them because they care so much about me. It's like, but you don't care about them and that's not fair to them. Like this is the thing that we forget and it just becomes a rationalization for not wanting to go through the short-term pain of actually breaking up, even if you're allowing that person to find more long-term happiness, right? And I think that that's that's what we're really bad at. So that's where I think that we need to say, you know, like in the employment relationship, well, maybe I can turn it around with this employee, but let me sit down with them and give them the feedback that things aren't going well and then work out with them what turning it around actually looks like over the next month or or six weeks or two months so that we have clear benchmarks, clear performance indicators that would tell us that they actually have turned it around where I've sat down and done that with them collaboratively. So we're both in, you know, we both understand what the expectations are and what needs to change. And if those things don't change, then it's not worth sticking to this relationship. And if they do change, then it is. So it helps you to distinguish between those two things, like which path am I supposed to take, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I love how you said, like, stick to things because it's worthwhile and not because it's just hard. I mean, obviously, something like fitness and your health is definitely worthwhile for people to take advantage of in whatever way it works for them. We all know that there's so many benefits for like taking care of your health. And I think what you said there, like the unlesses and talking about just how we're almost addicted to just seeing things through and winning at all costs, no matter what kind of dovetails into something else I want to talk to you about. And that is like your contrarian view on goal setting and that we live in this world where we're taught to set all these crazy goals, to set these goals and just stick to them and achieve them no matter what. Like talk about your view on goal setting and how we can do a better job. Yeah, so this is this really comes out of some work from Marie Schweitzer, who's at the Wharton School, along with some other some other collaborators of his. And you know, I think that what we need to realize is that nothing is either good or bad, right? One or the other. In the same way that grit is not a virtue and quitting is not a vice. Right? Sometimes gritting it out is a vice. If you're like, if you keep going toward the summit, even after there's a snowstorm, right? It's not not a good thing to do. And sometimes quitting is a virtue. And it's true with goals. Like we think about goals as just like, well, you have to set clear, specific goals because that's what's going to allow you to achieve the things that you want to achieve in life. And that's true. But goals also have a downside. And the downside is that the goal becomes the object that is graded very much as pass-fail. So let's think about why would Siobhan O'Keefe keep running in a marathon after she broke her leg on mile eight? 
Well, because there was a finish line, because there was a goal. The goal was very clear. It was 26.2 miles, right? So let's think about the problem with this. So this is causing her to run headlong. Why? Because goals are graded as pass-fail. You either achieve them or you do not. One or the other, right? And so if you run eight miles of a 26.2-mile race, you have failed. Never mind that you ran eight miles more than you would have if you hadn't started. If you run 16 miles of a 26.2-mile race, you have failed. Never mind that you have run 16 more miles than you otherwise would have. And I think that we can feel this very clearly, this pass-fail nature of goals, that it's like so categorical and the progress or wrong way doesn't matter. If I gave you this thought experiment, tell me which feels worse. What if you never set a goal to run a marathon and you never tried? Or you set a goal to run a marathon, you trained for it, you started the marathon, you ran 16 miles of the marathon, and then something happened and you had to quit? The second, I think the second one. By a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. So what is that? Right? Like if we're thinking about like the health of you as a human, obviously training for a marathon and running 16 miles of marathon is much better for you as a human than sitting on the couch and not having tried at all. So that's a weird thing, right? So what happens is that once we set a goal, which is a finish line, we have by definition also set a, set a starting point. So once we decide to run a marathon, we have set a starting line. And then once we do that, We do not measure ourselves by progress from the starting point. We measure ourselves by how short we are of the finish line. And here's the thing that we need to realize is that we do not like to, I'm going to use Richard Thaler, who is a Nobel laureate, his terminology here. We don't like to close accounts in the losses. What does that mean? Meaning that if we're short of our goal, if we've somehow experienced a loss, like we don't like to sell stocks where we bought them at 50 and they're at 40. Never mind that if we sold it, we could put the money into something that was a better investment. We don't like to do that because that's the moment where we go from a $10 loss on the books to an actual, like a realized loss. It's the moment like where we go from failing to having failed. And as long as we hold on to that stock, there's a chance it might go back to 50. There's a chance we won't actually have to take that loss and finish. So when Richard Thaler says we don't like to close accounts in the losses, what he's saying is that when we start doing something, we open a mental account, whether it's like buying a stock or starting a marathon, we've opened a mental account and that mental account has some goal attached to it and we can experience losses or gains. And if we're experiencing losses, we don't like to close those accounts in the losses. So we have an account associated with that stock. We don't think about all the stocks we could ever own. We're just thinking about that one stock, same with a marathon. And this is where we get the problem is that the way we figure out about whether in the losses in the games is not objectively because it's a psychological phenomenon. It's psychologically feel like we're in the losses when we're short of the finish line. And that's what causes us to keep running with a broken leg toward the end because we don't like that idea of sort of having to take the loss, take the failure, that pass-fail nature of goals which is really bad. On top of that, goals are fixed objects in a changing world. What does that mean? Well, the world changes, right? You change. But we set a goal when the world is in a particular state and we're making a forecast of what we think we can achieve within a particular time, right? And we're doing that 
also forecasting who we think we're going to be as a human being. But the, all of those things change. We get signals from the world or you know, we get signals from ourselves that this isn't something that we want to do in the first place. So if we t- go back to the marathon example, it's like you set the goal of getting to the finish line, but you're not thinking that you're going to break your leg somewhere along the way. But what happens is that once we break our leg, we don't really reevaluate the goal. And that that's true for kind of anything that we do. Like, you know, as an example, like maybe I have a goal of losing a certain amount of weight or gaining a certain amount of muscle within a certain period of time. And I'm making a forecast based on people of my age who, are, you know, sort of have my level of activity, who start off either more or less overweight or whatever, what I think I can achieve within that period of time. The issue is that along the way, I learn new information because people do do these things at different rates. And when I learn that new information, I ought to be reevaluating my goal. And some of the information, for example, that I might learn is that in order to actually achieve that goal, I'm giving up too much. Because every time that we set a goal, we have a cost-benefit analysis that we're associating with that. So we're trying to get certain benefits, but what we're doing is deprivileging other values that we have. So as an example, I may discover along the way that I'm giving up way too much time with my family in order to achieve the goal because maybe I have like super aggressive health goals, okay? But it turns out that in order to actually achieve those, I'm going to give up too much time with my kids. But I keep sort of going at it even though it's making me unhappy because I, I set the goal and I didn't reevaluate it. And you can see that, for example, with Sarah Olsten Martinez, right? Like clearly, you know, she wanted to be good at her job. She was really excited to be promoted to administrator. That feels good for everybody. But at some point, it's taking too much time from her family. So the benefits that she's getting from her position, the cost to that is too great. And so she needs to then sort of reevaluate her goal. But even in that case, it took her a couple years to actually get to the point where she talked to me. That's how hard it is for us to sort of reevaluate because we set a goal that's like this idea of like, what am I trying to get? What am I willing to sacrifice in order to get it? And then once we've done that and we start heading toward that goal, we tend not to reevaluate the goal in the first place once we gather new information. So we need to unfix those goals some way, which is the way why I say they need unlesses with them. Like this is my goal unless, you know, unless I break my leg along the way. And then the third problem with goals, which I think is actually the most significant one, is that once you set a goal, it puts blinders on you, you know, and you become myopic. So you're heading toward the goal and that's all you can see. And what happens is that you now no longer see the other opportunities that might be available to you. And I think that that's really bad because some of those other opportunities might be better for you. And we ought to be sort of exploring and looking around for what are the other things that we can do because it's very hard to evaluate the upside or the, you know, what you're getting out of the thing that you're doing currently if you can't see the other things that might be possible, that might be available to you. And I think, you know, when you think about the relationship situation where someone's in a relationship, you as someone who's an observer can kind of see like how much of a catch that person is and how much opportunity they would have to meet someone really great and be in a much happier relationship where it was reciprocal and the love was really great both ways. But they can't necessarily see it for themselves because the thought of failing to actually sort of like stick to that relationship and work it through is just too horrific for them. You might see someone who's in a job where clearly they're unhappy and you can see, you know, all the opportunities that might be available to them, but they can't see that for themselves because they're already in it. 
And I think that's another problem with goal setting is that we need to realize that it, it does cause people to stick to things when other things would be more worthwhile. Gosh, man, that is such good advice for people. And I think it, it's hopefully going to change the way that people like look at goals. And I think hopefully give people like inspiration to have like these pre-committed non-negotiables, right? Before they commit to something, making sure they have non-negotiables, values, like goals of what they want, unless like kind of how you outlined it. And then like when they're in the thick of it, they're, they're unhappy with their job. They're unhappy in a relationship to really take a step back and evaluate, like, what did they get, get in this for? Like, what are the options right now? What is this going to cost me over time? Um, what do I want in my future? And just making sure that all of what they're in at the current moment, like aligns with all that. And hopefully that moves them closer to making a better decision for their life. So Annie, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I could spend hours talking about this stuff because it's just, it's not only important, it's fascinating, like to hear you talk about like the cognitive stuff that goes into this and how we think, because I've struggled with this a lot, like personally and professionally, I would say that everybody does, right? At certain times of their life. And we sometimes make the right decision, sometimes we don't. And hopefully you're able to at least look back with some sort of silver lining and say, oh, like I learned something from that or I'm so, or I'm so glad I made that decision. It's built my character in this way because I decided to quit early or whatever the case may be. And I think people are going to really want to connect with you and, and read your new book. So where's the best place for people to find out more about you? Well, you can go to AnnieDuke.com. Lots of stuff there. You can subscribe to my newsletter there. I have one. It's thematically been around quitting recently, not surprisingly. <laughs> and then there's a contact form there. Obviously, I been talking about Dr. Sarah Olson Martinez, who contacted me through my website. So I do, I'm not perfect, but I try to reply to as much as possible. So that's a great place to get me, to contact me. You can find me on Twitter at Annie Duke. Uh, obviously, you can find my books in the normal places that you would buy books. And, you know, I really do like interacting with people who've read my work and getting their thoughts. And, you know, so I hope people will try to get in touch with me. Sweet. Well, I will make sure to link all that stuff in the show notes because I think people are going to be fascinated by this and want to learn more about you. And for those listening, I know Annie is most active on Twitter. So what I want you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that she said about her personal relationship with quitting. Maybe it was something that she said about like why we have a hard time quitting. Maybe it was something that she just said about goal setting. Maybe it was something that we said or that Annie said as far as like why we have a hard time with just seeing things through and, and not quitting, like how we can get over that fear and, and some of the things that go along with that, whatever it was, make sure to tweet at Annie and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopst, and we'll see you next time.